Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Morning. Thanks for reading that, Brother Ron. Um, as you know, our text is in Luke 19 this morning, and uh, the title of this message I slightly changed uh, to uh, the Messiah of Peace and His Mission to Save. So that's, um, in a nutshell, what this message is all about, and so we'll unpack that this morning, why don't we pray, and then we'll ask the Lord to, we'll ask the Lord to help us, and we'll dive right in. Father, you are so good. You are so kind and gracious. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is so much more. Lord, we have every reason to sing hallelujah to you because of your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. And so, we ask that you do it again, Lord, just like you met with us first hour. Would you do it again in this hour, God? Would you pour out your Holy Spirit in fresh measure this morning and meet with us? Show us Jesus, Lord, with all of his beauty, all of his glory, full of grace and truth. And transform our hearts, Lord. Make us more like Jesus. Convict us, Lord, of any areas of our life where we need to change. I pray that we would open up our hearts to you, Lord. Whoever we are, wherever we're coming from, thank you, Lord, that we can admit all of our flaws and spill out our guts before you. You are that kind and that gracious to receive us and to take us in and give us a new beginning, a new start. Thank you for that, Lord. So into your hands I commit my spirit, Lord pray that you would work in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. At the outset, I wanted to start by saying that Christianity teaches that no matter how good you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter uh, how knowledgeable you are, you cannot save yourself. It's, you just can't. It's impossible. We are all sinners bent on living independently of God, and we do that in one of two ways. Either we live independently of God by breaking his law, uh, just deliberately choosing a life of self-discovery, totally rejecting God and saying, not your way, but my way, God, my way. Or the other way that we live independently of God is by keeping his law in order to control our life, our circumstances, and control God himself almost as if we're trying to get leverage over God with our goodness or our law-keeping. And both approaches are a dead end. And we all need a Savior. And that's precisely why Jesus came. If you look at the key verse in Luke's Gospel, right? Chapter 19, verse 10, we saw it when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus 
The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, right? That is the key verse of this whole gospel, and that is where this whole gospel is headed, right? Jesus is setting his face toward Jerusalem. Why? To seek and to save the lost by reigning on a cross, dying on the cross for sinners like you and me. And so the call of the gospel, the simple call of the gospel is that if you embrace Jesus as your Lord, you will live. It's that simple. But the, the same can be said in a negative way. If you reject him as Lord, you will die. It's no surprise that irreligious people reject Jesus. We know this, right? When we think of irreligious people, we think of maybe those atheists out there, uh, maybe those people who are pagans, you know, the non-church-going people, right? That's not, that's not a surprise to us. But what is a surprise to us, maybe, is that religious people reject Jesus too. And they happen to be in the church sometimes, Maybe in this church. You see, it's possible to know and understand the gospel and yet still reject Christ. And sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that if, uh, you know, I grew up in the church, so I'm a church kid, and many of you young people here are church kids. And it's very possible for you to know all the answers, to do all the right things, and still be lost, and still reject Jesus. Whether you choose the public school route, or the homeschooling route, or the Christian school route, it doesn't matter. It's possible to know and talk to talk the talk and still reject Jesus. Um, rejecting Jesus is probably the scariest thing that you could ever do. Let me illustrate. Rejecting Jesus is like refusing help from a lifeguard while you're drowning from a riptide. No thanks. I'm good. I got this. Here's another illustration. And I take a risk in saying this because it's still really fresh, but I'll say it anyway because I want to drive home this point. Rejecting Jesus is like a Turkish man saying no thanks to a rescue team who's trying to take him out of the rubble from the earthquake. And I don't want to minimize what what is happening right now in that part of the world. That is horrible. It is horrific. And we weep. We should weep over that. And God, God's heart weeps over that. But it still drives home the point. And this is exactly what happens when we see Jesus entering Jerusalem. His own people that he came to save reject him. And even more than that, they crucify him. They don't want him. They throw him away. But this is all part of God's sovereign plan, right? This is the bigger picture. This is the grand story of redemption. This is how crazy the gospel is. Jesus came to seek and save the very people who would reject him. 
very people who would reject him. Like, why on earth would anyone in their right mind want to do that? (laughs) You know? And Jesus does it. Jesus does it. Jesus is the Messiah of peace who has come to save. And what he does in this passage is that he invites and calls all of us to make peace with God before it's too late. Because although the doors of mercy are wide open, they're going to be shut. And it's going to be too late. Yet again, I have to preach another passage that's heavy. Last time I think I preached another passage that was heavy. And again, we joked around that uh, when Pastor Kevin is gone, I have to take these these texts. Um, And he gets all the really nice ones. (laughs) But all kidding aside, this uh, this is what Jesus wants to teach us today. And I want to try to articulate it. Um, how did Jesus come to bring us peace? It's one of the questions I want to raise uh, for the remainder of our time together. How did Jesus come to, to bring peace? And I want to answer that question in three ways. And this is the outline for this morning. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. This is the trajectory of Luke's gospel. First, as our king to reconcile us to God. And second, The reason he set his face toward Jerusalem was he did it as our priest to unite us permanently to God. And third, he set his face toward Jerusalem as our prophet to teach us the mission of God. So that's where we're going to go today. And I want to start with this first point. The reason Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem is first as our king to reconcile us to God. Look at verses 41 and 42. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, have known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So up to this point, everything hangs on this moment in Luke's gospel. This is where Luke's gospel has been heading. And we finally come to this climactic moment In Luke's gospel up to this point, Jesus is getting closer and closer. Scholars call this the the journey motif in Luke's gospel. And he writes it in such a way so as to be on the journey with him. That when we read this gospel, we're to be on the journey with Jesus. And he's heading towards Jerusalem. And he's getting closer and closer. We see this. He gives us clues as readers that he's getting closer and closer to his destination. Chapter 18, verse 35 Luke says, as he drew near to Jericho, that should signal to us as readers, well, he's getting closer, right? And then in chapter 19, verse 29, he says, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, again, that's supposed to signal to us, he's closer. And then again, when Pastor John walked us through the triumphal entry passage in chapter 19, verse 37, Luke says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives. That's supposed to signal to us, he is really, really close. It's really close. And now we get to the moment. And Luke wants us to feel this moment. Look at the progression in verse 41. He wants us to feel this. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus weeps over the city. just want to pause there. We just need to think about that. The Son of God bursts into tears. And we're not talking about quiet, silent crying, you know? Most of us cry that way. We don't usually like sob like a baby, like, ah, you know? Jesus loses his composure. Like, this is your Savior. This is your God. And he weeps over Jerusalem. Why? Uh, the other thing that Luke is trying to do is he wants us to feel the irony in this passage because at the triumphal entry, remember there was celebration, there was singing, and now the celebration has turned into lamentation. Now the singing has turned into weeping. He wants us to feel that irony because this is not how it should be. This is not how it should be. Why is our Lord weeping? In the Old Testament, Jerusalem, you see, was supposed to be the joy of the whole earth. There are many texts that point to this, Psalm 48, 2, Psalm 37, 6, among other passages. And now, again, ironically, Jerusalem is not the center for joy and peace. Jerusalem, the name means foundation of peace, and it's not the city of peace. It's a city in chaos. It's a city that is consumed with war and revolt and power and pride. It's bent on spiritual death. According to William Hendrickson, who's a commentator, he says that instead of, un- instead of belief, there's unbelief. Instead of conversion, there's apostasy. And that is why Jesus weeps. His own people don't receive him. They reject him. In fact, Jesus goes even further and he says this really significant statement. He says, the way of peace is hidden from their eyes. Now that's really interesting because that statement is actually written in the passive voice, which means this, that at some point they became so blind and so hardened that God actually hardened their hearts. They can't see anymore. And, of course, that raises the question of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, right? And I want to pose to you that there's actually both in this passage, both divine sovereignty, God hardening their hearts, blinding them, and there's also human responsibility. This is on them. Look at how many times the word you is used. I think I counted 10 or 12. Look at verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will be set up as a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, it's both. Can't make a dichotomy between the two in this passage. And we have to receive that. And this is how I make sense of it. 
uh, when, I, when I think about divine sovereignty and human responsibility in this passage, is that the more you harden your heart, the more blind you'll become unless God intervenes. It's like all of us are like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings. I'm trying to take my ring off here. I love you, honey. <laughs> Illustration. Oh, I can't even take it off. Amazing. So much I love you. Oh, my goodness. Okay, here we go. It's like all of us are like Gollum and the ring. We just become so consumed and so obsessed with our sin that we just can't help but keep going after it. And uh, it's like we're like Frodo. We need somebody to bite our finger off in order for us to see it. God has to intervene. You see, Jerusalem had everything wrong about what the Messiah should be and what the kingdom of God should be. See, they wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Rome, who would set them free from the clutches of Rome. They wanted to be an independent nation, an independent people. They wanted a Messiah who would bring the glory days of Solomon back. But you see, Jesus did not come to give us what we want. Jesus came to give us what we desperately need. And he came to give us reconciliation with God. That's what we all desperately need. He came to reconcile us to God. You see, without Jesus, all of us are enemies of the cross. All of us are enemies of God. We are at enmity with God. We have a hostility between us and God. And that means that we are children of wrath under the curse of sin and that we need to be set free from it. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He set his face toward Jerusalem to make peace by the blood of his cross, right? To make peace so that there would no longer be this obstacle between us and God. He came to reconcile us to God. See, when you are reconciled to God, you go from an enemy of God to a friend of God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's true about you if you're in Jesus this morning, like, You were once an enemy far off from God and now you have been brought near and now you're a friend of God and you have peace with God. Therefore, like Romans 5, 1 says, right? Now that we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. God is so good. And when we're reconciled to God vertically, that changes how we live horizontally, doesn't it? We no longer hate our enemies, but we love them. We no longer wish bad things upon those who persecute us. We pray for them. We no longer hold a grudge against others. We forgive, right? We forgive because we have been forgiven by God in Christ. See, Jesus is Messiah. The Messiah Jesus and his kingdom is different than what Jerusalem and what we expected. This is his kingdom ethic, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies, forgive. That's what it means to be reconciled to God. Jerusalem rejects all this. Rejects that kind of kingdom, that kind of Messiah. And so that's why Jesus predicts their eminent destruction. Look at verses 43 to 44. 
Jesus says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, there are like five details that Jesus gives, like really vivid details that we're supposed to picture in our minds as to what is actually going to happen to them. This, what Jesus is referring to here is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So when Jesus is saying this, this would have been in the 30s. So this is 40 years later. That's how soon. And when Luke is writing this gospel, it's uh, probably in the 60s. So that would mean in 10 or so years, this occurred in Luke's time. That's crazy to think about. But here is, uh, here is uh, just uh, two quotes from Josephus, who is a, an early Jewish historian. And he actually comments on what happened. He was actually there when this happened. And it's crazy because what he describes is very similar to what Jesus says. Listen to these quotes. Here's the first one. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, lady and priests alike, were massacred. Here's another one. The emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground. That's what Jesus means when he says not one stone will be left. It's hyperbolic language to say it's just all going to be demolished. Leaving only the loftiest of the towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city to the west, all the rest of the wall that surrounded the city were, was so completely raised to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. It's crazy. It's crazy. All five of these details are actually also Old Testament echoes. Um, echoes from Old Testament passages. Isaiah 29.3, Jeremiah 52.5. Micah 3, 12, just to name a few. And what, what the significance of that is that what Jesus is doing is he's actually, he's actually trying to say that Jesus's, sorry, that Jerusalem's rejection of Jesus is actually a reminiscence of Israel's covenant breaking the first time. This isn't the first time that this has happened. This happened before in the past, um, according to David Powell and Eckhard Schnabel, who are commentators they say this and what the the point of all of that is is that the spiritual state of Israel in Jesus's day is no different than the Israel of the past it's like history is just repeating itself here we go again the same old broken record and so the result is destruction now what is the precise reason for their destruction look at the text again says in verse 43, for the days will come upon you. And then he lists the five details. And look at the last part of verse 44. These days will come upon you. This destruction will come upon you. What's the reason? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, what does that mean? So visitation is actually a shorthand for God's salvation. And it's one of Luke's favorite phrases to use. We came across this in chapter 2 when Zechariah heard about John Baptist, John the Baptist being born, right? And when he hears that John the Baptizer is going to be born, what does he say? He says, God has visited us. 
right? Which is another way of saying God has come. He's come to save us. That's what that means. So meaning this, that because John the baptizer is the forerunner for the Messiah, salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. His time of visitation has been here. His ministry has been going on for the last three years. And they didn't even see it. They didn't know the time. They didn't know it. And that's why destruction is coming. What does this uh, mean for us? Because it could be easy for us to just be like, okay, this is, this is Jerusalem's problem. This is not mine, right? And I think it's a, it's a clear word to us from Jesus that simply this, that unless you're reconciled to God, destruction awaits you. It's that simple. Don't think that just because this is directed at Jerusalem, this isn't directed at us. Unless you're reconciled to God, destruction awaits you. Another way uh, to put it is that if you reject Jesus, or even if you're neutral to Jesus, you know, you're kind of just on the fence. What I want to say to you is this, is that Jesus weeps over you. That's, that's another way I want to put it. So yes, destruction is imminent if you reject Jesus, but I also want to say this. Jesus weeps over you right now. Even if you want nothing to do with him. The reason why is because he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, and that includes you. And so you have this amazing opportunity to respond to Jesus today if you have never responded. Like today is the day of salvation. Don't wait any longer. Especially if you have been raised in the church and have been exposed to Christianity all your life. What are you waiting for? Right? What are you waiting for? That's what, how we're supposed to read this. For um, us as believers, I think how this would apply to us is, let me put it in this way. So we may not, those of us who are believers, who love Jesus, we may not reject Jesus as king, but we may reject our need for him functionally in our life. Right? All of us can say, and we do say, Lord, I need you. But how we live doesn't match that often. Right? And so what do we do when we don't believe that we need Jesus? We turn to ourselves, right? We rely upon ourselves. I could do this. I got this. I could do this in my own strength. I'll trust in my resources, my abilities, my gifts. I'll trust in what I know, who I know. Trust in our self-righteousness. And one of the ways that this actually comes out is in your prayer life. Your prayer life is actually a thermometer for revealing the health of your Christian life. Like, are you actually praying Or is your life characterized by prayerlessness? And I'm not just talking about, you know, like the, just the once a day prayers that you pray. We need those, but I'm talking about really devotedly praying to God. Because you, because you're desperate. Because you're like, I can't do this on my own. I can't do life on my own. Here's another question I want to ask is, um, what's one area of your life 
that you fear surrendering to Jesus today? What's one area of your life you fear surrendering to Jesus? And why? Why? Um, Here's one more on this point. What's one area of your life that Jesus, when he looks into your heart, he weeps over it? I know for me, recently, I've been noticing um, just like a temper where I've just uh, snapped or just uh, scrumpy. And uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot again, honey, but I have an amazing wife who just tells me, Gabe, you're being grumpy right now. And I'm just like, okay. But it's, that's what's so sinister about sin is that we, I didn't even see it. I didn't even realize it that about myself. I had to repent. And I knew in that moment that I was breaking the Lord's heart because of my temper and my anger. I had to surrender that to Jesus. <laughs> maybe for you it's not anger, but it's maybe lust. You know, a certain lust that you just go after. Maybe for you it's not lust, but maybe it's jealousy or envy towards another person for what they have, for who they know, for doing something better than you can. And you play the comparison game. Or maybe for you, it's maybe not envy, but it's bitterness. Just holding this grudge against somebody. Or maybe just bitterness towards God because of your life right now and your circumstances. And you're like, this is not how I planned it. These things grieve the Holy Spirit. And we need to surrender them to King Jesus. Second, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, not just as our king, but as our priest, to bring us to God. Look at verses 45 to 46. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So we move to this next episode. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was Sunday, the start of Holy Week, commentators tell us. And when Jesus enters the temple, it's Monday, and things escalate even more. We all know what is coming, right? We all know what Friday is. And so Jesus is busy. He is working, right? He is determined. He is resolved. Jesus enters the outer court, and he is appalled by what he sees, what he smells, what he hears. Because the temple, his temple is profaned. Instead of being a sacred place, it's turned into a money-making business, an animal market. There's something else. The outer court is actually the court of the Gentiles, which means this, that it's the only place where Gentile worshipers were permitted to worship in the temple. But they can't because the area is too crowded, too much traffic. And you know what this means? This means that they are prevented from being able to worship. More than that, historian uh, Jean-Pierre Ispout says, what's more, worshipers had to convert their coins into costly Tyrian shekels 
the only currency that was accepted within the temple before they could purchase any animals. Prices were, were skyrocketed. Made it even harder for people to buy sacrifices in order to worship. And now, I mean, we're talking, it's, it's going to be Passover pretty soon. Pilgrims are streaming from all over the place to get to Jerusalem to worship from all these different regions of the world. And they can't or it's made difficult for them because of all these obstacles. Man, the church should not be like that, right? It's going to make a jump, straight application to the church. We should not make it hard for people to worship here. Regardless of who, what, who they are, what they look like, their culture, their ethnicity, what language they speak. We should make it really easy. Open these doors up. Let the peoples flood in. Let the peoples praise him. Thus, the temple is profaned by animal waste and by buying and selling. The Gentiles were prevented from worship. And here's the, here's the thing that get, really gets me is that no one did anything about it. Like, where are the priests who are supposed to look after these people? Where are the chief priests? Where's the leadership? They do nothing about it. But Jesus does. So he begins to clean house. He drives it all out. This is my temple and I'm going to purify it. I'm going to cleanse it. Don't you love our Lord? This is what he does. This is what he wants to do here in our church and in our lives. Why does he do this? Why does he do it? Look at uh, verse 46 again. Because we have a, a twofold explanation for why he does it with what he says. He entered the temple, began to drive those who sold. Here's reason number one. Saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. I'll stop there. So first, first reason he does this is he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer. You see, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to teach us and remind us and them what the temple actually symbolized in the Old Testament. And the temple symbolizes God's presence on earth. The temple symbolizes heaven itself. That heaven's, heaven is open and we have access to God. That's what the temple pointed to. That it, that's what it was about. It wasn't about the structure itself. It's about what it pointed to. And What's amazing is that Jesus hearkens back to Isaiah 56 to tell us, how would you summarize what the temple is all about in one word? And that word is prayer. Simply prayer. It's not about the building. It's not about programs. It's not about ministries. It's not about a building project. As important as those things are, it's simply about prayer. Why prayer? Because prayer is shorthand for connecting with God without any interruption. Getting on your knees and experiencing heaven itself. It's about connecting with the God who made you and the God who redeemed you. That's the power of prayer. Prayer swings wide the very throne room of God himself. where We as the children of God can enter in like little children and sit on our father's lap and ask him anything. That's the power of prayer. That's what this house is for. That's what the temple 
is all about. See, prayer is the essence of worship. And Jerusalem forgot about that. And if we're honest, we forget about that too. Just the simplicity of prayer. When God's people pray, amazing and powerful things happen. Don't underestimate what God's people can do on their knees, crying out to God like babies. So that's the first reason. The second reason, he doesn't quote from the Old Testament, but he alludes to an Old Testament passage to make a certain point. He cleanses the temple to expose the hearts of the religious leaders. Look at verse 46 again. So he states something in the positive. He entered the temple again and began to drive those who sold, saying to them, it is written, here's the positive, my house shall be a house of prayer. And then here's the negative statement, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he's doing that to reinforce his point. Though the temple is a house of prayer, these religious leaders have made it a den of robbers. And this is an allusion to Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 11, where this is actually known as Jeremiah's famous temple sermon that he gave, where he rebuked the people of Israel because they were stealing, they were murdering people in cold blood, they were oppressing the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. And here's the crazy thing that they were doing, to ease their conscience. They went into the temple, they offered sacrifices, and they said this, I'm not joking, some sort of mantra three times, they said, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. It was like their security blanket. It was like them assuaging their conscience that they were okay, that they were in the right. And Jesus is basically saying, you guys are no different. The religious leaders are no no different. Those buying and selling in the temple are no different. Because here are the parallels. Just like the people that that Jeremiah addressed in his day, they prevented the Gentiles and the outcasts from temple worship. They were oppressing the widow, the the orphan, the eunuch, the sojourner from entering into worship. The second thing, the second parallel is that the temple, the sacrificial system, the traditions became the ultimate thing, not God. They totally missed the point of what the temple was all about. It wasn't about the sacrificial system. It wasn't about the temple structure. It wasn't about their traditions. It's always been about God. And they thought to themselves, well, we have the temple, so God must be on our side. God must be cool with us. And that is why Jesus does something about it and he cleanses the temple, he cleans house. But there's something that Jesus is doing that is deeper here because this is sort of like a parable. There's a deeper meaning behind what Jesus is doing here. Here's what I mean. When Jesus cleanses the temple, he is actually transforming worship as we know it. He's actually saying, this old temple that I'm standing in it's going to become obsolete because I am the true temple. The presence of God rests on me. It's not about a location or a structure. It's about a person. And I am that person. So stream to me. Everybody stream to me. All the nations to see the face of God. He's also saying this. The sacrificial system is over. 
because I am the ultimate sacrifice. That's why John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice of all sacrifices, once for all, for sin. That's why you and I can be forgiven. Just think about that. All of your sins, past, present, and future, totally forgiven. Gone. Because of Jesus. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, all of you human priests, you can't save because one day you're going to die. You're actually a sinner. You've been atoning for your sin first and then the people, but there's a better priest who's not going to die and who is not a sinner and who lives forever to save to the uttermost. I am that great high priest. This is a new day. This is a new dawn. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus unites us to God permanently. But there's more. There's something else. Not only does Jesus unite us to God permanently, he actually unites us together as one. He makes us one. In Isaiah 56, 7, Luke actually omits the last part of Isaiah 56, 7, which says this, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. Right? Now, the reason that Luke omits it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about it. Actually, he does care about it because that's actually how he's going to end his gospel. He's going to talk about how the gospel is meant to, be, to go forth for all the nations, right? So here's what I mean by this. That God's vision for the temple was always multi-ethnic. It was not just limited to the nation of Israel, right? God's vision for the temple is supposed to be expansive on a global scale. I mean, Adam and Eve, when they tended the Garden of Eden, that was supposed to be a little temple. And their job as priests was to spread and expand the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth, right? And Jesus is the new Adam who has come to spread the kingdom of God through us. Peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All the nations. And when you look at the church today, the church is not just limited to America. It's not just limited to Africa. It's all over the place. All over. To the nations. I almost wanted to say uh, like a buzz light ear. To the nations and beyond, right? (laughs) But I digress. Jesus, in the words of Ephesians 2, Jesus himself is our peace, right? Like, it's amazing that Jesus is standing in the court of the Gentiles. He's broken down that wall. Like, he has broken down the, the wall of hostility that exists between ethnicities, and he says they're gone. The curtain has been torn in two. You have access to the Holy of Holies 24-7, and all the dividing walls that divided us are gone in Jesus. Right? We are one. So regardless of what your ethnicity is, whether you're a man or a woman, regardless of what your culture is, what language you speak, we are all one in Christ. Amen? We are God's temple on earth. So what does this mean for us? Just practically. Um, I want to be personal here and I want to ask this question. 
Um, if Jesus looked at your heart right now, what tables would he turn over? And when I'm asking that question, I'm, I'm basically saying, what needs to be purified in you? Um, Jeremy Riddle, who's a worship leader, songwriter, he wrote the song, What Joy Is Found, that we sing here. Um, it was asked him, he was asked in an interview, um, they asked him, uh, what is the one thing that the American church needs? And without hesitation, he says, purity and worship. And when he, when he said worship, he wasn't just talking about the singing or the songs. He was talking about all, all of it. Like the church, all of us as a whole, the body of Christ. Purity and worship. Purity and worship. I agree. I think he's right. So when Jesus looks at your heart, what, ta- what tables does he need to flip over? Is it pride? Is it bitterness? Is it a judgmental spirit? Is it self-righteousness? And I want to ask the same thing for Waterbrook. If Jesus were to walk into Waterbrook, what tables would he flip over? Because we're not a perfect church. We all have our own issues, our own flaws and weaknesses. I'm seriously asking that question. Myself first. What tables does Jesus need to flip over? in this church? Is there division? Is there strife among us? Are some of us not getting along? Maybe he needs to flip over those tables. Maybe there's differences because of our age, an age gap between us. Maybe some of us have a love for tradition. We just want things to stay the way that they are. Maybe Jesus needs to flip that table over. Maybe we have, maybe we need to work on being a welcoming church. And some people feel unwelcomed here for whatever reason. Would Jesus point that out about our church? Another question I want to ask is regarding prayer. How is your prayer life? Because prayer is the essence of worship, right? How's your prayer life? Do you feel intimate with the Lord or do you feel distant from the Lord? Do you feel warm towards the Lord? Do you feel cold? Do you feel indifference, numb, or do you feel passion in your prayer life? Um, Last question on this point. Is your relationship with God characterized by joy or by fear? Joy or by fear? Is it characterized by love or by law? So Jesus unites us to God. Lastly, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem as our prophet to teach us the mission of God. Look at verses 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Don't you love that? That's so good. So in this episode, Jesus teaches all day in the temple. It's probably Monday or Tuesday, give or take. And as he's teaching, all of a sudden the heavy artillery comes in. All the temple authorities, they come in because they're upset that they were cleaned out, right? They're upset at what happened. 
the chief priests, the scribes, the principal men of the people, all these important authoritative people who are the religious leaders, right? And what is their intent? Their only intent is to destroy him. Get rid of him. Destroy him. Man, that is a lesson for us as leaders, for me as a pastor. Because you see, they were driven by fear and insecurity. Their egos were threatened. I think that's a good lesson for us as pastors and elders. Do we lead out of fear and insecurity or do we lead out of love and confidence in who we are as believers? The same can be applied for all the ministries that we have here. If you're a ministry director of a ministry here, do you lead out of fear and insecurity or do you lead out of love? Do you feel like you're threatened? Your ego is threatened? Good food for thought. Here's the crazy thing about this is that these guys... They have the highest authority in the temple. But here is the humorous aspect of this passage, is that they can't do anything about it. (laughs) We're supposed to feel the irony there, right? These are the head honchos, the chief priests, the scribes, the interpreters of the law, the first important people among the men. And they can't do anything. And so... The scene forces us to ask this question. Who has the ultimate authority here? Who is the ultimate authority? It's Jesus. Right? It's not the chief priest. It's the high priest. It's not the scribes. It's the true interpreter of the law. Jesus Christ. It's not the first. That's the word for principle. Protos. It's not the first man of the people, but it's the protos, the firstborn of all creation. Who's in charge? Jesus Christ. The people knew this, right? They're listening to him. Don't you love that? They were hanging on his every word. They're like, this guy doesn't teach like these guys do. Why? Because when Jesus teaches, he's like, thus says the Lord. Who is the final prophet to end all prophets? Who is the very mouthpiece of God? It's Jesus, the prophet of God, who teaches in the temple of God. And I just want to challenge you on this. Like, When was the last time you heard the word like that? Whether you're reading your Bible on your own or listening to a message, hopefully it's a good one. When was the last time you like you perked up, your eyes widened, you were like really listening? Whoa, right? That's that's what characterizes a Christian, right? Isaiah 66 tells us that the Lord says, "To this one I will look." to him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. Do you tremble at God's word? Right? Does, this, does this word actually matter to you? Is it your final authority for all of life? Or is it just some other book that you can just pick and choose what you want? 
This is from the word of Jesus himself. And what was handed down to the apostles. What is the, uh, the essence of Jesus' teaching? We have a clue from uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Because Jesus keeps teaching in the temple. And what is he preaching? The gospel. The gospel. The essence of Jesus' teaching is that there is good news for all peoples. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. This is what it's all about. And this is exactly how Luke ends his gospel, right? When Jesus, before Jesus ascended to glory, what does he tell his disciples? He says this, Thus it is written in chapter 24, verses 46 to 48, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem as our prophet to teach us the mission of God so that we may go on mission for God. That's what it's all about. Like we, we don't come here on Sunday mornings to hoard this experience. We want to share it when we go out these doors. Amen? Amen? We can't keep this message to ourselves. It has to go out, right? And that's the whole point. So I want to end with uh, these, this application. Um, am I like, am I, am, are you like the authorities in the temple? Are you driven by fear, power, and insecurity? Again, this is a lesson for us as leaders, right? Am I driven by fear, power, and insecurity in my leadership? Or in whatever kind of leadership position you have here or outside of the church? Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you actually wept for the lost? Like when you look at Victoria and how there are over 10,000 souls here in Victoria, how many of them still don't yet know Jesus? We're supposed to weep over that. Right? When you look at the Twin Cities, weep over the fact that there are thousands of souls who still don't know Jesus. Uh, Let me ask you this question. Who are just three people in your life that you need to share the gospel with? Three people. Maybe coworkers, maybe your neighbors, friends, family. Just start there. Three people. And what are some steps that you can take to share the gospel with them? And last question I want to ask on this point is, is God calling you to missions? <laughs> like, is he calling you to actually go and make disciples of all nations? And I would just start with, what nation or people group has God placed on your heart? You know? Look at them. Think about them. Has God placed them on your heart? And if he has, it's for a reason. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem as our king to reconcile us to God, as our priest to unite us to God and one another, as our priest to teach us the mission of God so that we may go on mission. Jesus loved us so much that he came to seek and save us even when we rejected him. And so, how can we not be reconciled to God?
and make peace with one another and spread that gospel peace till he returns. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have the final say. And so we submit to you, Lord. We surrender to you, King Jesus. Just have your way with us, Lord. Have your way with us. Show us the areas of our life where we need to change. And meet us, even now, as we partake of the table and continue to worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.